0: Thanks for joining us in our series on the book of Ephesians. In this letter, we get a thorough view of God's cosmic plan of reconciliation and reunification in Jesus Christ. Its truths are vital for the Christian's understanding of personhood and the church. Cornerstone exists to declare and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people complete in Him. 2-33 to together, already right, welcome to everyone who made it out to endure the weather, and I am going to turn to everybody else who's at home, you probably hear me, just let you know that we miss you, we love you, we are praying for you, we need you, and we long for the day where you'll be with us again. We know that some is sickness right now, and some is the vulnerability, we pray for you and long for you to be with us. Um, on that note, we continue to pray for the end of this pandemic. We want God to intervene and to work in this way. And yet we pray as well that he would encourage our faith. That he would build us up and supply every grace that we need to make it through this. We know that that's the way Paul talked about the thorn in his flesh when he had something terrible. Probably something that bothered him a great deal. Probably something that Adam and Eve didn't deal with. Probably something from the curse that he struggled with. And yet his response is that, God would you take it? And if not, your grace is sufficient for me and the truth is when we get to the end you realize that Christians are the only ones who can be content in the midst of calamity that's where we stand right now and we trust Christ and we call for him to do what he will do but yet we understand that he's making us more like Jesus all the time so let us remember then to pray for one another remember one another in, in, in calling or visiting what the things that we can do we still must do one another's spiritual good obeying christ's call to us to be the church all right let's look at ephesians 5 i'm going to read from 22 all the way through 33 and then we'll pray this is god's word wives submit to your own husbands ask the lord for the husband is the head of the wife even as christ is the head of the church his body and is himself its savior now as the church submits to christ so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands husbands but just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I say that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our most holy God, we thank you for the sunshine. We thank you for the sun, Lord, the one who has shined upon his people. We come into your presence together pleading the precious blood of that son, Jesus Christ. We bow before you, Lord, humbly recognizing that you are the almighty sovereign Lord of all. And Lord, we realize that we are unworthy to come into your presence, but for Jesus. We come boldly to you then, to your throne, because of the finished work of Christ. We ask that you would teach us today, that you'd shape us, that that you'd even break parts of our hearts that are stubborn against you, Lord, for your greatness and good. Lord, we want to be more like Christ. We want to be one with you. We pray, Lord, that you continue to use the preaching of your word for our good and your glory. We love you, in Jesus' name. I'll start with a question. Although, like, these last few months have been so nice, I feel like now I can't read anyone's face whatsoever. Like, my spit pit became enormous now. Um, But I'll start with a question here. For those of us who tied the knot, why are you married? Why are you married? Now, lots of people have reasons for this. Some have good reasons, some have not so good reasons. Some of you are wondering, where is this going with all this? Um, but I mean, a lot of us understand this. We, we have different reasons for getting married. But I, you know, we have, I've, I've thought about this and read about it a little bit, and I came across an article this last week I thought was helpful, written, written by Maggie Gallagher in uh, the City Journal. She wrote an article for her readers that said 10 reasons why marriage is good for you. It was kind of a data driven approach to understand some of the things that actually make a difference in a person when they get married. She's kind of a statistics guru and puts all those things together in a report for people to understand that there really is some sort of a difference. Now admittedly, of course, her findings might have some different nuancing and understandings. However, this is what the kind of, some of the stuff she found out. She found something about safety. It's safer for the husband, it's safer for the wife, and it's safer for the children that have a household with a husband and wife in it. But living alone is just statistically a little bit more dangerous. She found that a married couple will earn more money and will actually be able to build wealth over the long term as well. Obviously, you can understand the synergy idea, the idea of shared values and trying to go after a goal, and then, of course, also tax reasons. We know this kind of stuff will benefit someone. She also saw that marriage increases the fidelity of a person. You can think about the physical relationship. She understood also and showed the data that those who are married... Um, are having more and better intimate encounters inside of their marriage. That's what's happening inside that. Married people also, she found, have less mental health problems. She saw these things that even showed that even though things can get crazy, having someone as your partner in regular life is good for it. She also showed, I don't know how she showed this, but that those who are married, usually, and we can all attest to the variance in this, are more happy overall and understood that that is the higher levels of happiness belong to those usually who are married. Now, we'd agree that most of these are true. It doesn't mean that they're all true, and they're all the true all the time. But it it doesn't mean, even though they may be true, that these are the reasons for getting married. That This is the reason you'd say, well, I guess I'm convinced. I'll find someone to marry, and we'll do this thing. Uh, These would be good benefits of marriage, perhaps. Something that would be good for you that came out of it. The whole problem with Maggie Gallagher's article is that it's 10 reasons why marriage is good for you. I want to ask a little bit of a different question. I'm not just saying what were the reasons that some people get married. I want to ask a deeper question, a little bit more objective. What is the purpose of marriage? Again, uh, like an institution, why was it created? The question, again, for married people here is, is this one, but it's also going to be relevant for all of us, and you'll have to track with me and trust me here. But we should all be asking this question why was marriage created? We all need this. I'm I'm asking, why did God make human marriage as an institution at all? What is it for? Some would say procreation, to have children, to fill the earth with children. Um, Some would say it's a very important unit of the political structure. And what I mean by that is to make sure that basic human society has a structure that takes care of the smaller units they can have responsibility for building character and into children as they grow in a meaningful way. It's kind of like the marriage then would provides that foundational structure. Some would say it's companionship. To have a lasting friendship and camaraderie that sticks together through the difficult times and the good. And then some would even say it's actually for discipleship and for understanding and, and sanctification. To learn to deal with another person and to love someone sacrificially. Now these are all good purposes in marriage I'd even say that most of them are actually biblical the ones that I just talked about here but I I, want to ask again a little bit more than just the physiological question a little more than just the mental question even more than just the practical spiritual question I want to ask what is God's purpose for marriage what is he intending and the answer like I said is for all of us today each one of us whether you're a child or an adult whether you're married or you're not married It's important because Paul is wrapping this into the book of Ephesians to help us understand what he's trying to communicate. So it's important for us both to understand the book of Ephesians, but also in his broader context to help us to understand ourselves as individuals within the church in all of the cosmos. So, his purpose for marriage, as we're going to see very quickly, is great. And by that I mean great and profound, I'd even say huge. I mean, it is something that is profound and large and enormous across the universe. God's purpose for marriage, yes, is very practical, both for those that are married, but also for those who are not. Last week, we covered verses 22 through 28. We kind of understood what the design for marriage was from Paul's perspective and the household. Paul instructed us how to do it. He showed us how the household should be structured, Starting with the roles of the husband and the wife. We saw that the wife was to submit to her husband and the husband was to love his wife. Both roles being based on the respective obedience and example of Christ and the church. But this week, as we go on in verses 28 through 33, we're going to see kind of two things surface here. One main idea that we're going to get from it, but we're going to see it kind of come up in two ways, cleverly brought to us. First, we're going to see further instructions for the husbands to love their wife. And the way he talks about it is really harping on us guys here, but he's going to lead to a a deeper, different topic through this, which is God's purpose for Christian marriage. Paul has already told the wives to submit to the church and the husbands to love their wives like Christ. But in these next few verses, Paul will expand that discussion on how the husband should love his wife. It's a new aspect specifically here, not brand new, but of this husbandly love that's really rooted in the second greatest commandment. Uh, When I say that, I mean the second greatest commandment that Jesus answered in Matthew 22, originally from Leviticus 19. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Look at the passage with me. Look at verse 28. It's the first part there. He says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He's using the same structure. Do you see that there? Think about love your neighbor as yourself. Love their wives as their own bodies. Now, there's obviously a slight bit of difference here, and we're going to get to that in a minute. But we first need to see that Paul is calling husbands to obey this ancient task of loving their neighbor. It just so happens that the neighbor that Paul is talking about is their wife. This isn't a new command. Again, they they all know they're supposed to do this as an outworking of the first greatest commandment, to love the Lord their God, their heart soul and mind it's not a new command we all know though but that's not what he's trying to say here necessarily a brand new thing we all know especially guys just pay attention for a minute we all know how to take care of ourselves to some degree or another i know there's some that do a little better than others my point is we understand how to take care of ourselves when we're hungry we eat when we are thirsty we drink when we are tired we sleep When we are dirty, we take a shower. Again, I'm not saying about the quality of how good we do these things. I'm just saying that we do these things because we know self-preservation. We understand that we are to take care of our body in some way. We automatically know how to keep our body living and working, and we do it. He tells us in verse 28, In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church. Now, I just want to want to stand off or step off for a minute here and think about it. I've got two things I want to say really quickly. First, Paul is not promoting self-love. Paul's not saying you should love yourself more. I think this would be a perversion of Jesus' words and for Paul as well. He's not saying that that's what we should do. He's not saying, you guys you really ought to take care of yourselves. You really ought to treat yourself. Like That's what you need to do, take care of yourself. That's what really needs to happen here. That's not what his message is. He's not doing that, this is not about self-love. But secondly, he is doing he is doing something here that's a little different. What he is doing is talking about something that we all do quite naturally. He's helping us understand that every living person knows how to take care of themselves, to keep themselves alive, and try to do the things that they need to do to continue the next day after day after day. Now I know that there will be a handful of people in the world who would deny themselves some of those things. Think about like maybe a monk or some sort of an ascetic. Someone who would maybe uh, expose himself to harsh treatment or you know keep from food or some of these things. All these though are not the natural way that God even made us to be. They're all some sort of incorrect philosophy of living that someone would subject themselves to this as though somehow that brought them better holiness or more righteousness. He's not saying that at all. He's saying that every person basically understands what they need and acts on those. He says no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it. Now, I, I just want to, this is going to be a more of a, 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 a tender comment for a moment, but I want us to think about this. Some of us might be tempted to think that Paul didn't understand the modern day struggle with the hatred for our bodies. It's a whole big thing right now that we would hate our body image. One thing or another that we would hate this. Like you said to yourself sometimes, Paul you're wrong. I do hate my body. I hate the way I look. I hate this and that and the other thing about me. Maybe you just don't understand I even have like self-deprecating thoughts because I hate my body so much. Just for a moment, that's not what Paul's talking about. However, I think it's right to offer a pastoral word here This is not the same topic, but I I think this is helpful for us because I know this is a real struggle for many of us. Um, You might hate the way that you look, but that's because you love yourself. And this is what I mean by that. You want yourself to be something different than you are because you think more highly of yourself, and that's the way you'd like to present yourself to other people. You may hate different things because you want to be another person. This is the same struggle that I have all the time because I love myself. The end end product is really that it's starting out out of a heart of pride because I think I'm better than I am and I want so badly to present this certain front to people and I'm not content often with what God has given to me and rather I want to be my own God and show myself to be a certain way. It shows that a person is pretty good at knowing what they want for their own flesh and the entire struggle really actually centers around true love for yourself. And as I said, this is not what Paul is dealing with here in this passage. But I think it's helpful for us, especially in a world that tells us that you, know, you just need to love yourself more. The scriptures over and over tell us that we have no problem loving ourselves. The problem is that we don't love God more than ourselves. And so we should take his word here. Our value, we remember this from last week, our value, our beauty, our dignity is all based and being an image bearer of God. Looking to God will give us the proper perspective about how we look and direct us to truly love the things that he loves. So Paul is encouraging us, again, for self-love here, nor is he out of touch with what it means to hate the body. Paul simply is assuming that we automatically know how to keep care of ourselves, our bodies, to keep ourselves alive. We know how to cherish and nourish it. So Paul's command here is to the husbands that they should nourish and cherish their wives as they do themselves. But the way I I, I said that is actually not a wrong teaching, but it's an incomplete teaching. What I mean is, I said this this line, I said, Paul's command to husbands is that they should nourish and cherish their wives as they nourish and cherish themselves. That's certainly true. But that's not exactly what he says here. Paul says more than that. He adds something else in here that's really important for us, and he's starting to drill down deeper. Think of this for a minute. Paul has already shown us that husbands are to love their wives as Christ sacrificially gave himself over to death for the church. I mean, that's a pretty high standard, right, to start there, and now he's going to talk about loving your wife as you love yourself. So my question is, why would he kind of go back to a, a lesser strong argument or a weaker argument than what he did already? Why would Paul move to this a less compelling description of how a husband should love his wife? Well, I think the answer is going to come to us as we continue to read here, but it also is in the changing of the word. This is not arbitrary. This addition of understanding body is going to be really important for us to understand what he's trying to do. Look at verse 8 of 28, excuse me, he says, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves His wife loves himself. Now this isn't a metaphor. We might think it is, but every Jewish reader knew that he was not making up a metaphor here. And the truth is, we should know this as well. From the very beginning, from the creation of marriage, that when a husband is joined to his wife, when they hold fast to one another, they are one flesh. That's what he's communicating when he gets to verse 31. Do you see what he does there? He actually goes back to Genesis 2.24. And he's going to quote this here to help us go back to the very first marriage. What I'd like you to do, normally I don't do this, but I want you to go back and look at it with me. So open your Bible, go back to Genesis 2, and we're going to read from verse 18 through 24. It's going to kind of climax to verse 24, which is Moses' statement about what he is telling uh, Israel and us about what's going on in the creation of marriage. But let me read from 18 to 24. So Genesis 2, 18 through 24. Verse 18. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see that he would what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. And here's his response. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. When Moses writes these words, he's making it clear the marriage of a man and woman, the joining of them together, cements them into one flesh. It's not a metaphor. It's real. When a husband holds fast to his wife, when they are joined together, they become one flesh. Now, obviously, we know that a person still maintains their individual personhood. But Moses is telling us that this is no casual relationship. This is intensely personal. It's more serious than the one that mankind has with his relationship with animals. It's more serious than a man would have with another friend. It's a more serious relationship than a father and mother have with their children. Think about how intense this is. It's more serious than any meaningful relationship that we have outside of marriage. In the marriage relationship, two people join together to form something different. It's physical, it's emotional, it's spiritual, and yes, that means it's real. Again, in our day and age, we take it so casually as though it doesn't matter. From the opening of Scripture, we realize, the creation of marriage, that this thing is serious and wonderful and glorious. We understand that when a man and a woman, a husband and a wife come together, they become one flesh. So when we come to Ephesians 5, 28, and here Paul effectually changed the word yourself to your body, we understand what he's doing. He, what he's doing is properly encouraging neighborly love. But now he's heightening it to help us understand that he is going back not just to neighborly love, but pointing us to something even bigger a foundational teaching that marriage is a relationship of a one-flesh union. He's highlighting this blessed union of marriage and showing how absurd it would be for a Christian man, husband, not to love his wife. He's highlighting this for us. He's showing us that when a man does not cherish and when he does not nourish his wife, he really does so to the detriment of himself. In other words, if he doesn't love his wife in this way, he either hates himself, which we've established and Paul shows that he doesn't, or, and this is probably where we clue in, we don't understand marriage and what it really is. And because we don't, we profane marriage when we act in this way. And more than that, we actually rebel against God. In other words, to not do what Paul says here within Christian marriage, we rebel against God. I mean, guys. If, if I can just talk to the husbands for a moment, do we think this way when we are selfish or when we think about the things that we want to do or how to advance ourselves or how to advance maybe our family and don't think about our wife in the exact same way? Uh, I mean, do we understand that every time we're selfish in marriage, every time we don't love our wife in this way that we are bringing harm to her and to ourselves? Again, I think if I'm just honest about myself, I don't know if I often think this way about my own marriage. Do we realize that we bring shame and reproach to the beautiful institution of marriage that God created? Do we realize that our selfish actions in marriage are often an affront to God and his designs? I think we need to take this seriously and remember that if we are married, we are united with one flesh, in one flesh with our wife. That being said, this is not just about love for neighbor. although that's true. It's about being vigilant to take care of every need of our wife. In some way, this way, we would talk about that we assume responsibility for taking care of our own needs. It's, in a sense, natural to us to do so. So, guys, I'm I'm included in this as well, in this admonition. Stop thinking about only your body, or your mind, or your career, or your personal achievements and development. For your safety and your pleasure nourish and cherish your body your wife this is the call guys again I I, I think that the way I think if I'm just honest I try to, to be a good husband but I often think of my wife as my closest neighbor and a good friend and when I think of her I try to give myself to her and love her in this way but truth be told it's usually I think not I'm just saying it out loud I think of myself first it's natural for me to do so This passage is saying the way that you take care of yourself, Chris, you need to be thinking about Chris in the same way. Taking care of her, nourishing her, cherishing her in the same way. That it's second nature that you would go to do this. This is really the lesson that Paul is teaching us as husbands. That because we are one with our wives, we should love them more personally and intensely and completely. Now, this isn't a new lesson. Think about this for a minute. He just put together Leviticus 19 and Genesis 2. This has been around for a long time. Paul's not saying anything new by doing this just right here. Again, Christians certainly have known this for a long time. Israel knew it. This would have been a good teaching for those that were worshiping as Jews together underneath the Mosaic Covenant. This teaching isn't necessarily impressing anyone in a new way. It's very good, but it's nothing new necessarily. So the question ought to be for us, why is Paul teaching this way then? What's he doing here? As I said before, why would Paul bring up this important teaching when he's already hammered a probably more compelling, more serious thing that says husbands love your wife like Christ loved the church. Now why would he make this argument? Why would he do this? Again, it's because we haven't necessarily finished out the passage yet here. There are still some things for us to talk about. He's bringing up this teaching because something important has happened since Genesis 2 and Leviticus 19. Something important has happened that has completely changed the landscape forever. Something has happened that's shifted all of human history. It's brought a fresh significance to the institution of marriage. Paul is bringing up this teaching of the two becoming one flesh ultimately because Christian marriage uh, Christian marriage illustrates and displays the wonderful and glorious union of Christ and the church. Now, you want to know what the ultimate purpose we kind of started out this way what's the ultimate purpose of marriage from God's perspective? Here it is Christian marriage illustrates and displays the union of Christ and his church. Look at what he says here. understand that, that Christ has come that he's prepared. Um, his bride and that he has paid the price to sanctify her as his own he's washed her with the word listen to the passage starting verse 28 he says in the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies he who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh but nourishes and cherishes it just as christ does the church because we are members of his body Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Paul isn't negating the good teaching he just gave us about husbands should love our wives in this way. Of course he's upholding it still, that's true. He's using it to show us that when we participate in marriage according to God's designs, we are a consistent illustration of the union between Christ and his people. That's what's happening here. This is why he says in verse 32, this mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. We know that something wonderful and even spiritual happens when a husband and wife come together to make one flesh. This is wonderful, but it's not a mystery, at least not in the way that Paul has been using this term mystery in the book of Ephesians. We've seen him do this already. He did it once in chapter 1. He did it three times in chapter 3. And if you flip over to chapter 6, he's going to use mystery again there. What he is doing every time he uses mystery is always, I want you to hear this here, when he uses the idea of mystery, it always points to something that in the plan of God was hidden in some way for some time. But now it has been revealed in the coming of Jesus Christ. I'll say that again. This idea of mystery, the way that Paul uses it, is always pointing to something that in the plan of God was hidden in some way for some amount of time, but now has been revealed to us in the coming of Jesus Christ. This this is how he uses it here as well. The same thing is going on. Before Christ came to earth, died, rose, and ascended to the right hand of the Father, we didn't grasp the connection between Genesis 2.24 and our relationship to God. This is the profound mystery that Paul is speaking into. Uh, We, we of course, saw the analogy of marriage used, the analogy of faithfulness between Yahweh and his covenant people. Think of Hosea. Think about the illustrations in Jeremiah. Or last week, we talked about Ezekiel 16. These analogies are very good, but these analogies were only that about the covenant that was struck back at Mount Sinai. These were meant to bring Israel to faithfully keep covenant with their covenant king, like a wife who was to be faithful to her husband. There hadn't been, though, in some sort of decisive moment when God became one with his people Israel. There hadn't been that and neither were they expecting it necessarily but in the coming of Jesus Christ the God-man who gave himself up for his people we learn that marriage is more than just a good way for two neighbors who happen to be man and woman gathered together and live in harmony. That's not all that marriage is. We're seeing not just neighborly love but something that promotes something way bigger than just two humans joining in marriage. Marriage has always been meant to prefigure Christ and his church. Now, prior to Christ's coming, we couldn't see it. And the truth is, it wasn't possible. But now that Christ has come, now that he has given himself up for his church, we understand that the relationship between God and his people is illustrated for us in the very fabric of Christian marriage what he made from the beginning. The mystery is that truly Christian marriage reflects the interplay then between Christ and his church. It reflect, think about this. It reflects the roles that we play. It reflects the love, the submission, the oneness that we experience in the new covenant, in our relationship with our head, Jesus Christ. The marriage relationship is not only practical, although it is, but it's meant to declare to us and to the world the plan for God to join with his people in glorious union. I mean, think about it. This is why all other types of sexual relationships or other forms of marriages are forbidden. They're wicked in God's sight. All fake marriages are perversions of this truth. This is why this matters. Remember what's happening here always speaks to the truths that we see above. That's what's going on here. Jesus, the bridegroom, doesn't unite himself with another groom. The church, the bride, doesn't unite herself with another bride. I'm not trying to be silly or insensitive here. What I'm trying to help us see is that this thing, marriage, reveals the beauty of the church's union between Jesus and his people. This means that the last week's message about how to do marriage in these roles could be seen in a whole new significance. God's design for marriage, what we talked about last week, is tightly tied to his purpose for marriage. God's design, let me say it again, God's design for marriage is tied tightly to his purpose for marriage. I'm saying that what we learned last week about roles in marriage, of submission and love, about how we are to do this is not an arbitrary designation. It's not just a good way for us to do it. It ties directly to God's purpose for marriage. Paul is showing us that there is a reason for us to do what we do in marriage. The roles we play are not meaningless, but rather they display and demonstrate and even disciple us in our understanding of our role as Christ's glorious bride. Do we ever buck then? against the leadership of Jesus Christ? I mean, just be honest about your own self and how you operate day in and day out. And now think about this truth and reality of what we are to do as his bride, as the one who submits to his lordship. We understand here that this question is not just for those who are married. This is a question for all of us. Do you ever act then as a rogue wife that's just gone off to do whatever she wants to do? or even a wife who was willing to live in some sort of peace within domestic life, but doesn't actually submit herself to her husband and everything. Do we act then sometimes like we know best? I mean, we would never say that, right? We would never say that we know better than Jesus. How often do we act as though we are the one that should be the head making the decisions and running our life? You and I need to examine the way that we live before God. Think about this, pride, selfishness, and even what we talk about as self-reliance can be signposts of our rebellion against God. Together then, as the body, we must submit to Christ in everything. There's no area of our life that we get to say, this part's mine, everything else, I'll do what you say, Lord. Every part of our lives is His. But the better thing about this is (laughs) our confidence is so much more sure. Sure. Is it not reassuring to know that the husband we speak of in this relationship is perfect? Perfectly loving, perfectly self-giving, perfect in every single way. You and I may have been hurt by a bad husband in some way or another. We may have seen it this way. We may, you may still be struggling with it right now. But Christ is the perfect groom, the perfect husband. He's a perfect leader. He's a perfect lover. He's already demonstrated this to us in his death. He was willing to give himself up for us. If you wanna think about this, like think about how he has loved and given himself and cared for us, it's all real. It's not metaphorical, it's not an analogy. Jesus did it. The death and resurrection of Jesus is real. It's not just an analogy for how we ought to live our life. Jesus really died on a cross to sanctify us. He's really cleansed us. He really is washing us with the water of the word. And I can promise you that one day he really will present us to himself in splendor. Guys, we can be confident in this and we can confidently toss aside all fears of abuse or concerns about getting what is best for us and place our complete confidence in Jesus alone. The best husband that there ever will be. So my message really has just two applications. Number one, the first one that we actually see here is going to come as we finish the passage. Just look at the last verse that we got going on here. Paul has told us that Christian marriage is illustrated in displaying the union of Christ in his church. But look at verse 33. He returns and says, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He comes all the way back to the practical yet significant teaching of roles in marriage. He ends up by driving us back from the purpose of marriage to the design of marriage and how it works out in our day-to-day lives. Paul's saying, I am telling you guys, this marriage role stuff matters. Wives, submit. Husbands, you must love because this is the most real way of demonstrating what is going on with Christ and the church. So, if, if, if Paul really is tying our marriage roles to Christ and the church, we have no right whatsoever to relegate to this to just be some other human relationship. It's a closer one. No, this is important in every single way and holy. When a husband is selfish or a wife is not willing to submit herself to her husband, we tell a lie about God and his people. In other words, when we do these things, we are a living display of rebellion against God. Only a marriage where a husband loves, cares, gives himself up for his wife, only when he nourishes and cherishes his wife can the beat of Christ's love for his people be displayed as a living example of the truth. Only a marriage where wives submit themselves gladly to the leadership of their husband can the picture of the church with her head, Jesus Christ, be presented. What we do in this present time matters. The way that you and I act has to be in accordance with his purposes and his designs. And I'll just say, uh, just, just quickly, as a pastor, I'm not, not long, but as your pastor, you can expect this to be hard, but you can also expect great results. Now, that's the totally pragmatic side of this. What I mean is his designs uh, for roles in marriage are good, It actually helps our marriage, not hurts it. Despite what some of the world may want to say, it's not true. This is basic biblical counseling for marriage. Your marriage will be better if you follow God's design. However, more importantly than that, a marriage that follows his design brings God honor and glory, and it displays for the whole world the beauty and the wonder of the union of Christ and his church. This is the first application. But the second one, we've kind of already hit together. It's all out for us already, for all of us here. Paul's teaching on marriage has led each of us who are truly Christians to understand our role as the wife or the bride of Christ before him in his church. Understanding then the perfections of our savior and his inability to fail and his loving kindness and his immaculate track record, we can fully trust that Jesus Christ will be the best ever head that we've ever had. That he will take care and give himself over and over again as he's shown himself to do. Therefore, we can have all the confidence in the world to place ourselves in happy submission to Jesus Christ alone. Brothers and sisters, we can toss aside all fears of abuse All concerns of getting what is best for us, and place our complete confidence in Jesus Christ alone, the best husband that there ever will be. So then I say to us, let us submit with joy. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your great grace. What a gift for you to show us this in Ephesians 5. Lord, we are wicked husbands. And wives, we so often tend to take care of ourselves instead of one another. We bucket the idea of submission, whether to one another or to you. Lord, would you turn our hearts, would you continue to work faith in us as we look back to understand that it's only through your grace that we could ever do these things. We look to Jesus, who not only said, be my wife as the church, but instead he gave himself for us to wash us clean. We thank you for your great love. Lord, being a just God and a justifier. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For further sermons and more information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.